is our American Stories. And all this week, we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. Johnny Carson, well, he legitimized late-night television. He launched hundreds of careers, dominated the ratings landscape, and taught everyone how to do what he did. Only no one could do it like he did it. And nobody ever has. And so for the hour, we're going to spend time on this man, all the people he influenced, and most importantly, with his great generosity, all the people he championed, all, all of the artists in particular, and all of the comedians so many of whom wouldn't be here without Johnny Carson. In 1962, back when Johnny Carson hosted ABC's Who Do You Trust? A game show he launched with a newly hired unknown sidekick, Ed McMahon, he made this announcement to the world. I go over to, uh, on The Tonight Show on NBC starting October the 1st as the host of that show, and Ed goes with me as the announcer on the show, so I'm going to And so it started... A legend was born, and the question became, as in every artistic endeavor, by the way, this happens when a marriage starts. It starts this kind of conversation when a business starts, or any kind of partnership, if you're lucky enough to have one that endured like Carson's did with Ed McMahon. What were they going to talk about? What were they going to do? So as we're walking down, I said, how do you see my role down here tonight? And he said, Ed, I don't even know how I see my own role. Let's just go down and entertain the hell out of them. From New York, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. Right now, let's welcome the fellow you waited six months to see. This is kind of an emotional thing for me because I've known about this show for a long time. And the newspapers and the magazines, and I've probably been interviewed 150 times in the last nine months since I've known about this. And you get kind of charged up. I don't mean to be maudlin about it, but I know that tonight a lot of people, a lot of my friends are watching all over the country. And I only have one feeling as I I stand here knowing that so many people are watching. I want my man (laughs) there. And he started right there with his trademark self-deprecation. He loved to make fun of himself, and I think he put everyone at ease because of it. Carson was born in Iowa on October 23, 1925, and when he was eight, his family moved to Norfolk, Nebraska, where Father Kit Carson worked for the local power company. Johnny had a younger brother, Dick, and an older sister, Catherine, who was the favorite of the mother, Ruth. Mrs. Carson later said that she didn't like boys. They were dirty and nasty and not pleasant, she said. Actually, she's pretty right. We are pretty dirty, and we are pretty unpleasant. I'm not sure about the nasty part. In the later years, when he revisited his childhood home, he explained to Wayne, the boy who was the current resident and whom you're about to hear from, the lengths to which he would go to get his mom's attention. Hi, how you doing? You're Wayne, right? I met you before. (laughs) Hasn't changed too much outside of the interior decoration. My dad put that fireplace in, and I used to sit with a deck of cards. I did magic when I was about your age. Every place in the house, I had a deck of cards in my hand. Driving my mother crazy. My mother would be upstairs in the bathroom. 
Now, you may not believe this, but I would go into the bathroom and say, take a card. <laughs> that was Carson. By the way, he had taped this, played it on a special. He'd return to his home, his old home, to see what it was like. And just the way he dealt with his kid, you know, one of the unique qualities we'll learn about Carson as we go on, no matter who sat in that chair, presidents, ordinary Americans doing bird calls, singers like Frank Sinatra, rock artists, he treated them all the same. None of them got preferred status or diminished status. He just played it even. And he just loved, he loved, loved, loved people. As Johnny got older, he had new reasons for perfecting his magic, which became his all-consuming interest, where he learned the craft of illusion, of becoming bigger, of projecting and misdirecting and giving you a greater sense of something that maybe wasn't always entirely him. I took up magic uh, when I was young because I was somewhat shy and within myself, and I thought that would be a good way to go to parties. I read those ads, you know, be the life of the party and get girls. (laughs) Mainly I got it, uh, did it to get girls. (laughs) Neither one worked well. But lots of people do that. They'd like to get up and perform. You can be the center of attention without being yourself as such. Yeah, you'll hear about that. We'll be doing uh, next week an hour on Al Pacino and his craft, and you'll learn that Pacino had the same thing to say. So many of these guys, you would not think it. It's very counterintuitive. But they do all the things they do because they're shy. This is the only way they can communicate to folks. Lots of musicians share that same characteristic. Arsenio Hall, host of the breakout late-night Arsenio Hall show from the 1990s, illustrates, well, one of the other things that Carson had going for him, and it wasn't just humility. It was a near-perfect sense of timing. He had the perfect barometer in his head of when to go and when to stay out. He could save you if the show needed it, or he could let you do your thing. His ego could let you do your thing. And this is what made Carson great in the end. Joan Rivers, well, she agreed with him. He knew where you were going. He knew when to come in and say, how fat was she? He knew when not to say it. You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. (laughs) You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. Bumping in and out here, you're going to be hearing many of the people who sang on The Tonight Show, and you're going to be hearing their performances. This is Cindy Lauper playing her big hit time after time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on Johnny Carson. You'll hear from Jerry Seinfeld, Drew Carey, and so many other big, big modern comedian and modern stars. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Billy Preston. That was him singing on the Tonight Show set. 
We had just heard from Arsenio Hall and Joan Rivers about Johnny Carson's real, genuine, genuine gift of generosity. Here's Jerry Seinfeld's very first appearance on The Tonight Show. My folks are moving to Florida. Uh, they don't want to move to Florida, but they're in their 60s, and that's the law. <laughs> Long Island. You're, I think you evicted from Long Island, aren't yeah, you? 60? They have like a leisure police of some kind. <laughs> get the golf clubs, get in the van, folks. You know. Listen to Carson laughing. See, the thing is, he wanted his guys to do great when they appeared. Some stars don't want to see the people sitting next to him do better than them. This was the key to Carson. Leno couldn't replicate this. Letterman couldn't replicate this because their egos were too big. Colbert, Stewart, loved them, but they never made their guests funnier. And this is why none of them held a candle to Carson. And they all looked up to Carson as a genius, but didn't quite understand the, the reason he was. Want to play a... A clip now, and Carson was so generous with this guy. Uh, every time he came on, Carson would just set him up and set him up and set him up. And it's the one and only Rodney Dangerfield. Smoking, that's another one. Yeah. Try to stop smoking. That's a beauty, huh? Well, with cigarettes, my wife and I, we made a deal, my wife and I. We only smoke after sex. I've got the same pack now since 1975. <laughs> what bothers me is my wife. She's up to three packs a day. <laughs> Tell you the truth, and my wife and I, we never have sex. No. Now we get undressed, we can't stop laughing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing: when my wife does have sex, she screams. Ooh, especially when I walk in on her. <laughs> and on and on. I mean, Dangerfield could knock out a hundred jokes in a, in, in a seven to eight minute hit. We hear now from a grateful and emotionally moved. Drew Carey describing his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Curtain opens, you know, Johnny Carson introduces me, and it's just like I dreamed it. It's just exactly like I dreamed it. I go on a stage, I hit the mark. Then he says my favorite thing on the menu, it's a hot dog with cheese and bacon. Yeah, not enough nitrates in a hot dog, I gotta put some bacon on top of there. And for an extra dollar, they'll put chili on top of the whole thing. For people who don't care anymore. I remember seeing Johnny Carson holding onto the desk. He's holding onto the desk because he's laughing so hard so he doesn't fall off the chair. Because he's like, he's like convulsing. That's the kind of food just marches right down your throat, you know? <laughs> Follow me, boys. We're going to the heart. <laughs> and he goes like this. And I go, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. And I, I'm like, oh, no, nobody gets called over for the tonight. That's a big thing. It's like a religious experience. And then after that, my career was made. You're funny as hell. Thanks, I appreciate that. You Thank really you. are. Thanks. Uh, oh, you too. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, he said you too back to Carson, and Carson laughed. He didn't say, hey, kid, what are you doing? And he laughed and, you know, just naturally. If you're like me when you think of Carson, memories of your family pop into your head too. Because nighttime is one of those rare times in our day when the family can get together under one roof. Here's late night host Conan O'Brien. My dad would always say the same thing. Let's just watch the monologue. We'll watch a little bit of the monologue. I'm laughing and my father's laughing. And how, how often can you watch something with your father, you know? Can, he crossed generations, I think. Yeah, and especially making a father and a son laugh together. So many shows now separate generations out. And Carson's brought them together. A unique talent. In 30 years, you'd be hard-pressed to guess who Johnny ever voted for. 
And this was another one of his gifts. Unlike so many of the late night hosts, too, who let you know who they vote for, thus alienating half the audience. They just tune out. Well, that's the way it should be, actually. Why alienate your audience? Why alienate your own people? Here's Jay Leno. You never knew Johnny's politics. Johnny would come out and equally make fun of everybody and never question anybody's patriotism. It was always about what they said or did. President Ford is considering an income tax cut for people in lower tax brackets. That's, that's the good news. Now, the bad news is he still hasn't figured out how they can get an income. <laughs> Finally, some good political news. Bill Clinton has laryngitis, lost his voice. And I do have a late-breaking news bulletin for you. World War III was just declared. No, no, I'm... I'm just kidding, of course. Not really. I just wanted to get Reagan out of bed to watch the monologue. <laughs> you know, in order to avoid looking partisan, Carson would avoid, well, almost any invitations from any big political figures. Hillary and Bill. He declined the invitation. He also had said once, I was photographed at the White House with Hubert Humphrey, and I'm sorry I did that. What was obvious then and is even more obvious now is that Carson's unwillingness to allow his personal politics to insult his audience is the kind of old-school showbiz class that's all but extinct today. Here's Johnny on that very subject. I think one of the dangers, if you are a comedian, which basically I am, if you start to take yourself too seriously um, and start to comment on social issues, your sense of humor suffers somewhere. Uh, I try not to, uh, and we've had some criticism on the show. Some critics over the years says, well, the show has no great sociological value. It's not controversial. It's not deep. The Tonight Show basically is um, to amuse people, to make them laugh. It's a hard thing to admit with that much power. I mean, there weren't many wealthier guys in Hollywood, and I think so often today people get out of their lane and try and get into another lane. Musicians do this all the time. They're singing, you've paid your ticket, you've paid your dollar, and there they go. And you just want to tell them, shut up. They'll opine about the war. And, and it just, why do it? Why bother? Carson, no such thing. In addition to hosting the show, Johnny loved to appear in sketches. He learned a lot from the Carol Burnett show in this way. And he also created a state characters. Characters through which he could disappear and engage in a more daring brand of humor. One of them being Karnak the Great. A losing streak. A losing streak. <laughs> Describe a man running naked after chugging prune juice. He didn't mind making a complete idiot of himself. He'd wear that hat in that scene. He would walk up. That little Alibaba music would play. He would come on over, do the pratfall over the desk every time. Trip, it would break. He'd sit down. And they did this every week on Tuesday night. Forever. Never let it go. Here's Conan O'Brien on why he thinks we all loved and watched Johnny Carson. I don't think anybody was watching Johnny Carson to rate how his material was. Do you know what I mean? You liked him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. I think we liked him so much because one of the things Carson did, and did beautifully, was share his flaws even the painful parts of his life, 
with his audience. Here's Carson on his his divorce. I suppose the lowest lowest point I had was when I when I, was my first divorce because my children were quite young, and that sense of failure uh, overcomes you. Uh, that you have uh, been less than you should have as a husband or a father. Mm. And those guilt feelings can be overwhelming at times, especially if the children are young. That's probably one of the big low points I had. Well, it ends up he had more divorces, and he shared them with the audience, and most importantly, he allowed his staff to heckle him, and he even heckled himself. The decision you have to make is how do you want to handle it? You don't want to be bitter about it. You don't wish to uh, do any jokes that are cruel or to hurt anyone. So you try to turn it and take the the joke on yourself if you can. And have fun with the the situation. Uh, And that's what you do. You just sit and you, it's a gut instinct. What a gut he had. Here's Johnny. Well, cracking jokes on Johnny. I heard from my cat's lawyer today. (laughs) My my cat wants 12,000 a week for tender vittles. My cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. Johnny's making fun of how much money he's going to have to pay out. He's making fun of an acrimonious divorce in which someone he's been married to, maybe a couple of years, is taking, well, probably half of everything. And what kind of men do this? And this is truly the greatness of Johnny Carson. Today for the hour, we're going to talk about the man. We're going to hear his work, his art. We're going to play lots more clips so you can just hear... Well, our favorites, and you're listening to Tiny Tim, because it was no kind of musical act Johnny didn't parade before the American public, and none was more comical and entertaining and endearing than Tiny, Tim, him, her, whatever. Patriotic nephew of my Uncle Sam, a rough riding, fighting Yankee man. I love mom and apple pie and the freedoms that we all enjoy across this beautiful land. I've worked hard and I'd fight hard for the old red, white, and blue, and I'll die a whole lot harder. If it comes to where I have to, I'm a black-waving patriotic nephew of my Uncle Sam, a rough riding, fighting Yankee man. This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Johnny Cash singing on The Tonight Show. And we had just listened to Tiny Tim. That's some really smart booking. You got to love that about Johnny. So often people will just go with a certain musical style. A, they're cutting off their audience. And B, who the heck are they to say one kind of music's better? Just play it all. And he let them all come through. He was really ecumenical and generous that way. And, you know, we couldn't get over it over the break. 
And we said, we just need some more, well, Rodney Dangerfield. Now you can, I know my wife cheats on me. Every time I come home, the parrot says, quick, out the window, you know? I mean, my house, my house, I can't relax. Really? I, got my, I got a dog, he drives me nuts. Oh. I got a dumb dog, you know, we call him Egypt. Every room, he leaves a pyramid. <laughs> My kids, they don't help either. No good, huh? My kids, they're real smart kids I got, you know. Yeah. But the other day I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so are you. <laughs> no, I, got, I got a mean kid, a very mean kid. He scotch takes worms to the sidewalk, then watches the birds get hernias. Are you kidding me? Mean kid. Mean kid. And my daughter, too. She's no bargain either, my daughter. Are you kidding me? Well, she's been picked up so many times, she's starting to grow handles. I mean, you're kidding. Her graduation book, her picture is horizontal. It's ridiculous. My daughter, you my daughter. They call her Federal Express, you know. What's that? Yeah, when she goes to a guy's apartment, she absolutely positively has to be there over <laughs> I mean, I tell you some trouble with kids. They play around so young today, very young. I was talking to my doctor. You know my doctor, Dr. Finney Boombach. You know my doctor? Yes. Well, he told me last week in his office he got six cases of VD. I mean, he's all right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a strange doctor. Strange doctor. Oh, very yeah. kid. I asked him if my heart was strong enough for sex. He told me not if I join in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's right, Doc. But everyone wants love. Love is the answer, John. Everyone's looking for love. Deep love. A lifetime of deep love, you know? I'm looking for a shallow half hour, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it. What Carson would do is just set him up. He'd just ask a question and let Rodney take the stage. How many guys do that? They get in the way. About the closest Carson came to explaining himself is in this vintage Tonight Show clip in which he's talking to celebrity interviewer Rona Barrett. She takes the opportunity to ask him questions, which, for a while, he answers with surprising honesty. But then, well, she asks one question too many. Here we go. I grew up in the Midwest, kind of a normal, I guess what you'd call normal upbringing, you know, the part of the country. Uh, my, my folks were supportive in what I wanted to do. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. From oh, the very yeah. beginning? Oh, sure. How old? Well, I must have been about 12, 13 years old. I knew I wanted to, to entertain. You liked the attention? Oh, sure. But why? Why you? I mean, why at age 12 or 13? Because I was in a play or something, and I got up, and I did something, and people laughed. And all of a sudden, you say, hey, that sounds pretty good. So it makes you the center of attention. Yes, but why did you want the attention? Hmm? Why did you want the attention? Why did I want the attention? Because I was shy. Ah. Because I was shy. Well, that sounds like a, a ambivalence, right? No. On stage, you see, when you're on stage in front of an audience, you are kind of in control. When you're off of the stage or in a situation where there are a lot of people, you're not in control. And I felt awkward. So I went into show business thinking it would give me a little more, I could overcome that shyness. Where do you think the shyness emanated from? I, I bought it in Chicago. <laughs> enough, enough, Johnny was saying with this line of inquiry, though he let it go pretty far. And again... Most hosts wouldn't let the person sitting there 
ask them questions. Again, Johnny's generous nature, but also this great gut to know what is entertaining and also when not to be entertaining. Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, who ended his own show on his own terms years later, understands more than most what Carson really meant to late-night TV. You know, for my entire career, I've heard comedians in bars debate over who do you think is going to get The Tonight Show after Johnny leaves. What nobody realized is that when you left, you were going to pack it up and take it with you, which is what he did, because that show never existed again. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. Leno took it over, and now we've got, well, we know who we've got there now. Jimmy Fallon's doing his best, and these guys are good. But uh, Carson was unique, and it was, I think, because he just didn't try too hard. He just laid back and let others fill the slot. Carson walked away from The Tonight Show after 30 years at the top of the late-night ratings and of his own volition. By the way, we should do an entire hour on people who actually retired, well, way too long. And how many actually retire at the right time? I mean, think about it. Think of athletes. Think of Michael Jordan. I mean, he stepped away, and then he went and played baseball, and he looked ridiculous. And then he came back to the NBA, and he was getting the ball stripped of him, and he just looked terrible. Trying to think of the boxers who didn't. I mean, Joe Lewis kept boxing. It was just a tragedy. Muhammad Ali kept going. I mean, who did? Rocky Marciano retired right. Johnny Carson retired right. Led Zeppelin just said, you know what, we're done. John Bonham died, and they said, let's not look ridiculous. But I, I really, that's about it. Jesse, you can think of anybody? The only person that comes to mind right now is Tiger Woods. He should probably hang out right about now. I think right about now is a good time. <laughs> a very good time. And then all these bands that just keep touring perpetually in their 80s, they're going to be out there touring. That's just Yeah, the Stones might want to consider maybe one more tour and then calling it good. Yeah, the Steel Wheelchairs Tour. <laughs> We had, a, we had a couple of buddies one night. We were going to see the Stones about a year ago, and we started making up songs that would be age-appropriate. Because, you know, they're, you know, like just waiting on a friend, we, we thought that would be better if it was just called Just Waiting on the End. <laughs> and, and just so on and so forth. Hey, hey, you, get off of my cloud, was like, hey, hey, you, kids, get out of my yard. And, and it was, I know, I got to stop. <laughs> I got to keep my day job. Well, when we come back, we're going to be doing some more and playing a lot more from Johnny Carson. And uh, we'll do a little bit more Ronnie Dangerfield because, well, of all the folks that Carson ever had, well, that was his favorite. Dwight Yoakam, by the way, was born today. He had the most musical appearances of anybody in the Tonight Show history. And we'll play a little of his music coming in off of the Tonight Show. And we're also going to play Jimmy Stewart's remarkable poem to his dog, Bo. Stewart, who had always talked about his his dog, fondly with Carson, gave him a buzz one night and said, Johnny, I want to come on. And by the way, that was what the other beautiful thing about Carson. The guys did not come on to plug their movies. I mean, Carson didn't allow for that. You came on, you did a great eight or ten minutes of entertainment. That's that. And yet, if you had a movie every once in a while, he'd let you plug it. But you better give him a solid eight, nine, or ten appearances first. And you better be good. You're going to hear Jimmy Stewart's remarkable performance. And then you'll hear, of course, Bette Midler's last performance on the final night of the Tonight Show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Kenny Rogers singing on the Tonight Show. Lee Habib. More on Johnny Carson when we come back. Out the window, 
to boredom overtook us and he began to speak he said son i've made my life out of reading people's faces knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes this is our american stories and this is a part of our best of wrap-up of the year the very best segments from the arts to history well to music just about everything and these are the ones you've told us are your favorites. Listening to Our American Stories. That's Dwight Yoakam, Yoakam and Buck Owens appearing together on the set of The Tonight Show. Again, every kind of musical style it, it appreciated and admitted. Carson held back nobody. Again, Tiny Tim, we had just broken into before. Carson again was born on this day in history in 1925. He died on January 23rd, 2005, from emphysema. He was 79 years old. And looking back on Carson's life, his biographer, Bill Zeme, had this to say on Carson's formula for success. In the end, he put out a better product across the board, and it was because he was smart enough to know how to give room to funny people or to engaging people and, and let them shine. And let them shine, he did. You know, one of the great moments, I think, in late-night history Jimmy Stewart would come on regularly, and he would just come on and tell stories. He, he was way past the point of his career where he was doing a movie every year, and it was just wonderful, and he was always prepared with something you could tell that was rehearsed, often even written. And in this particular clip, Johnny invites Jimmy on to talk about, well, his dog, Bo. And Jimmy, you're going to hear a little fumbling, and you're going to hear Carson crack a joke it's because Jimmy's sort of fumbling with his paper he pulls out of his suit. Because this one he has to read, Jimmy Stewart. Here we go. I just, uh, I, I just thought I'd uh, write, write a poem. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yes. Do you want to hear it? Now, that's... Uh, uh, well. We could always start the, they could always start the wedding late, yeah. I guess. <laughs> The title of it is, is Bo. That's, that's the name of the dog. He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball or he felt like it. But, but mo mostly he didn't come at all. When, when he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you were with him, Things sure didn't drag. He'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. He bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. The gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. He set the house on fire. But the story's long to tell. They, suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. 
And on evening walks, and Gloria took him, he was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. <laughs> and he'd charge up the street with Mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare, and I'd wake up and he'd be sitting there, and I'd reach out to stroke his hair, and sometimes I'd feel him sigh, and I think I know the reason why. He'd, he'd wake up at night and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things, and he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And there are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us, and I pat his head. And there are nights when I, when I think I feel that stare, and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair, and he's not there. Oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. It was the one time I ever saw Carson cry. He held back the tears. So did Jimmy Stewart. I don't think Carson was expecting that. I don't think anybody was, and that was the beauty of that show. Tune in the late night and see if you ever experienced that. And it was always possible on the Carson show. You could laugh, but my goodness, he could also make you cry. Dennis, you're calling in from Chicago. Your moment with your dad. Share that with us if you could. Absolutely, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity to share this story with you and your audience. So when I was a little boy, first and second grade, I would often get up late in the night, late for me, and sneak out, and there would be my dad watching the Johnny Carson show on a singular chair in the middle of the living room on the council TV. And my dad was kind-hearted enough to let me jump on his lap and watch the Carson show for 10 or 15 minutes with him before he would shoot me back to bed. And we had a wonderful time with that together every now and then. And back about oh, three days after Christmas, when I was in first or second grade, Johnny Carson told a joke about Santa Claus. And the joke implied that Santa Claus really doesn't exist. And then Johnny caught himself. He said, oops, there may be some naughty boys and girls still awake. And I just gave up the ghost that Santa doesn't exist. 
And so I shot a look up at my dad, and I asked him, I said, Dad, is this true? And he looked down at me and said, Son, Santa Claus is right here. And he pointed to his back pocket where his wallet was. (laughs) (laughs) Dennis, thank you so much for that story, for the memories. I know so many listening have them, and uh, I know that memory is one that's close to you. You can hear it in your voice. Thanks for calling. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it. Well, on the last night of his broadcast, Bette Midler came out, and she closed the proceedings. And Bette, people don't know this about her, was a remarkable singer in her early years in the 70s down in New York City uh, and down into particular neighborhoods where torch singers and balladeers played. She was gifted. She went on to act, and people don't know this part of her career. But Bet came out, she was the last performer, and this is what she did for Johnny. Well, that's how it goes. And John, I know you're getting anxious to close. So thanks for the cheer. I hope you didn't mind me. Bending your ear For all of the years For the laughs, for the tears For the class that you showed Make it one for my baby And one the road that long Doesn't get much better than that, folks. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, we covered the life of Johnny Carson. And it's interesting where he came from, because he also attributed so much of his success to that small town in Nebraska. Right square in the middle of the country. Solid family upbringing. Solid, solid life. And he just, again, so generous, shining a light on others. The last thing he did in his life, on the air was shining a light on Bette Midler's remarkable talent and simply reacting to it. This is Our American Stories, and this is a part of our best-of wrap-up of the year. The very best segments, from the arts to history, well, to music. Just about everything. And these are the ones you've told us are your favorites.
is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about the arts and this day in history. And the two intersect with this segment, The Life of Jimmy Stewart, born on this day in history in 1908 in Indiana, Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful life. No, it's a remarkable life. Sit tight for the next hour. You'll hear about Jimmy Stewart from Jimmy, from all kinds of people who admired him, and a little bit about his background. He had Irish and Scottish ancestry and was raised as a Presbyterian. He was descended from veterans of the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the American Civil War. And you'll see how and when Jimmy himself continued that heritage. The eldest of three children, he was expected to continue his father's business at the local hardware store, which had been in the family for three generations. Here, Jimmy Stewart himself talks about childhood and growing up in his daddy's hardware store. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful childhood in a small town in eastern America, town of Indiana, Pennsylvania, which always confused people because Pennsylvania is a state and Indiana is also a state. And, and, and when I say, when they say, where are you from? I say, Indiana, Pennsylvania. And they say, well, make up your mind. Where are you from? <laughs> But it was a small town. I had two sisters younger than I was. My father ran a hardware store and worked uh, worked hard, worked hard until he was, well, 86 years old. And he sort of inherited the hardware store from his father. Uh, and his father inherited it from his father. So it was in the family a long time until I sort of broke up the thing, got mixed up in this acting business. But I, by, uh, I know the hardware business. I've spent a lot, of my, a lot of my young years there. Wow, his father works till he's 86. His mother was an excellent pianist, but his father discouraged Stewart's request for lessons. When his father accepted a gift of an accordion from a guest, young Stewart quickly learned to play the instrument, which became a fixture offstage during his acting career. As the family grew, music continued to be an important part of the family life. Stewart got his first taste of the performing arts during his tenure as a young man at Princeton University, where he acted in shows as a member of the Triangle Club. Stewart earned a degree in architecture in 32, but he never practiced the trade. Instead, he joined the university players in Falmouth, Massachusetts, the summer after he graduated. Here, Jimmy Stewart talks about this time in his life. I was going to be an architect, and I just my senior year in college, and I was just about to graduate. And a fellow came up and said, "Would you like to come up to uh, uh, Would you like to come up to Massachusetts? We have a stock company up there, and uh, come up. You haven't been to the seashore, and you will have some fun uh, uh, for the summer, and uh, then you can go back to graduate school and be an architect and build buildings and do all the stuff there. I said, fine. So I went up, and I, I think, you know, this acting thing, it's like a bug. It bites you, and uh, it bit me, and I went home and told my family that I wasn't going to graduate. I wasn't going to be an architect. I was going, I was going to do, and I had a little part in a play on Broadway, and I was going to be an actor. Wow. Imagine hearing that. Princeton to acting school. 
In this clip, Stewart talks about how his family reacted to his decision to become an actor rather than an architect. Bless their hearts, they were all very nice about it and everything. I, I, I just noticed that when I said this, everybody sort of reached for a chair. And, uh, and especially my father, who uh, uh, never quite understood the acting business. And uh, I think secretly he wanted me to carry on the, the hardware store. And I'm, in a way, I'm sorry. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm, for his sake, I'm sorry. Well... Understanding son, understanding father, but things had to be the way they were. That same year, Stewart made his Broadway debut in the play Carrie Nation. The show didn't do well, but boy, Jimmy Stewart soon found more roles. In 1935, he landed a movie contract with MGM and headed out west. One of the film's most beloved actors, Jimmy Stewart, he's made more than 80 films since in his lifetime. He was known for his everyman quality, which made him both appealing and accessible to audiences. In his early Hollywood days, Stewart shared an apartment with Henry Fonda. The tall, lanky actor worked a number of films before co-starring with Eleanor Powell in the 1936 popular musical comedy Born to Dance. The movie featured the Cole Porter hit Easy to Love. Another career breakthrough came with Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You. This comedy won an Academy Award for Best Picture and made Stewart a star. Here, Jimmy Stewart talks about those early days as a young actor trying to make it in Hollywood, in the big studios that he saw as perfect training grounds. In those days, in the big studios, which is a thing that's missing now, because they were, they were really training grounds, beside being big glamour factories, whatever you want to call them. But when you were under contract to one of the big studios in those days, you worked all the time. You had tiny little parts in big pictures, and every once in a while you would get a big part in a tiny little picture. You did tests of all kinds. And so true it was. There were many bad things about the old studio systems, but my goodness, you got to act. And you got to act a lot. And you didn't get to choose. And again, good things about the old major league system, bad things. Great things about the old studio system, bad things. And my goodness, as we talk about music a lot, Many artists are wishing major labels had more power. There was a day when artists hated the record labels. And the yin and yang between the studios and the business and the art of the arts, it's always there, that dynamic tension. When we come back, this remarkable life, Jimmy Stewart's life, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. More, more and more. His war service in World War II, remarkable. He comes back and continues to do remarkable work straight through to the end. One of the great icons of Hollywood and movie history and an American icon. It's a wonderful life. It's a remarkable life. The life of Jimmy Stewart, born on this day in history. Sit back. There's so much more good stuff to come. This is Our American Stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. This is our American stories. This day in history, Jimmy Stewart was born in 1908. 
He died, by the way, on July 2nd, 1997, 89 years. And multiple decades of acting performances. And where we picked up, things were just starting to get humming for young James Stewart. And Jimmy did Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939, portraying a young, idealistic politician who takes on corruption. Stewart received his first Academy Award nomination for this performance. Here's the scene from that film where Stewart champions lost causes in front of Congress before passing out on the House floor. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. All you people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today, full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both knew, Mr. Payne. You think I'm late. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. The following year, he took home Oscar Gold for the Philadelphia story for best actor in a leading role. Stewart co-starred with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, two other major movie stars in this romantic comedy. Here's a scene from the Philadelphia story where a drunk Macaulay Connors, played by Stewart, visits C.K. Dexter Haven, played by Cary Grant, in the middle of the night. Dexter Haven! Oh, C.K. Dexter Haven. C.K. Dexter Haven! Oh, this is where Cinderella gets off. Now, you hurry back to the ball before you turn into a pumpkin and six white mice. Goodbye. C.K. Dexter Haven. Oh, C.K. Dexter Haven! What's up? You are. Uh, Let me hope it's worth it. Come on in. I bring you greetings. Cinderella's slipper. It's called champagne. Champagne is a great level of litter. Leveler, it makes you my equal. Well, I wouldn't quite say that. Well, almost my equal. (laughs) Almost my equal. From 1941 to 46, Stewart took a break from his acting career to serve in World War II. Imagine this, folks. He gets an Oscar, and then he serves. He joined the U.S. Army Air Corps, later known as the U.S. Air Force, and rose up through the ranks to become a colonel by war's end. Stewart tried to enlist even before the Japanese launched their sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. He was rejected for being underweight. Standing over 6'3", he weighed under 160 pounds. The 32-year-old movie star went into training, eating high-caloric foods and drinking vanilla malts. 
in March of 1941, shortly after winning the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in the Philadelphia story, Stewart reported for his second physical. By the end of March, this Oscar-winning movie star was Private James Stewart, was shipped to Moffett Field at the southern end of San Francisco Bay for training with the Air Corps. In this clip, we hear from Jimmy Stewart in 1942 in a recruitment film produced by Warner Brothers aimed at young men who were thinking about joining the Air Force. Right now, the greatest mass mobilization in the history of the world is taking place. Men from cities, towns, farms, married men and single men, brothers, sweethearts, husbands, fathers and sons, businessmen and workers from the factories, and students from colleges and high schools all over America. They're mobilizing, joining up, or having their numbers pulled out in a fishbowl. And this war we're fighting today and tomorrow and the next day until we win is a war of the air. It was a war of the air and the ground. Too tall for the fighters, Stuart hoped to fly bombers. A little more than a month after Pearl Harbor, he earned his wings and was commissioned a second lieutenant. Wearing his Army Air Corps uniform, he served as a presenter at the Academy Awards in February and handed the Oscar for Best Actor to Gary Cooper, for his role in Sergeant York. During the spring of 42, Stewart had to resist several attempts to make him a public affairs officer. Many in the Air Corps thought he'd be of greater value making appearances than flying in combat. Here is another clip from that Warner Brothers recruitment video from WW2 starring Jimmy Stewart. I'll make no mistake about this thing, fellas. We're all going to be in this war soon, sooner than a lot of you realize. And nearly all the officers of this great Army Air Force that they're building today are going to be drawn from the ranks of you men, from high schools and colleges, those who join as aviation cadets now. Uh, well, now, before I go any further, are there any questions, you know? Hey, I'd like to make the Air Force, but I'm no brainstorm. My grades aren't exactly what they should be. I hear it's tough to get in. Not anymore, it is. Not anymore. After repeated requests, Stewart finally got assigned to bomber training, qualifying as a B-17 Flying Fortress pilot by February of 43. Against his wishes, he was kept stateside as a flight instructor, flying both the B-17 and the B-24 Liberator until November of 43, when then-Captain James Stewart was shipped overseas with a squadron of Liberators. Based just 100 miles north of London, he became a squadron leader in the 445th Bomb Group. Navigator Steve Kilpatrick said Stewart was, quote, a damn good commanding officer. I always had a feeling he would never ask you to do something he wouldn't do himself. In this incredible 1959 U.S. Air Force film, we enter the library in the home of Reserve Officer General Jimmy Stewart, who recalls some of the details of being a bomber pilot. They called us truck drivers, the fighter pilots did. Well, these were the trucks that delivered the payload back in those days when the Air Force concept of strategic bombing was first being applied. And it worked pretty well. Of course, we needed fighter support in order to get through. These fighters, they were sort of like traffic cops who cleared the way for us to Berlin, Hamburg, Essen, Cologne. And sometimes it took some clearing. But whether these fighters fought aggressive actions or defensively as interceptors shooting the other fellow down before he could strike at us. Their role was clear. They were fighters, and they fought. 
And Stewart was a fighter, too. Again, he could have taken the easy route, used his celebrity, and he would have helped the cause, raised a lot of money. But this guy had to fight. And by the way, as we learned earlier, it was a part of his heritage. From the Revolutionary War, Stewart's fought. And by the way, you're hearing him talk about the war, and he did not do it very often. As so many of the men of that greatest generation, they just didn't talk about it. Personal accounts of Stewart sound exactly like the Stewart we know from the movies. He regularly demonstrated cool, steely nerve and a homespun dry wit. Here, an unnamed World War II veteran remembers the time he and his war buddies saw Jimmy Stewart on the streets in London. One of my most memorable experiences of being downtown London and uh, with my buddies, no, no girls, just us guys. And I looked up the street. We were getting ready to cross the street. And I looked up the street. And standing there with this gorgeous blonde was Jimmy Stewart, who was a pilot. And I said, I nudged the guys. I said, look, that's Jimmy up there. And they, uh, we all turned and crowded and looked up the way. He had planned to come our way. He saw us gawking at him. And we looked, by the time we looked back, he was galloping across the street with this lady. <laughs> I can tell you one thing about Jimmy Stewart that I know for sure. He flew uh, many missions, wing to wing with our with our group, and he. I know he was in some very rough rides because we were in the same place. So they they didn't select any special missions for Jimmy. He he was right out there in the middle of it. They didn't select any special missions for Jimmy because he wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Again, it's not just a wonderful life we're celebrating. It is a remarkable life and a humble life. And by the way, I've never heard anybody ever say, I don't like Jimmy Stewart. And by the way, if you're that person, please turn off the radio, go away, and seek some therapy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Jimmy Stewart, celebrated on this day in history, as always, brought to us by our friends at Hillsdale College. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Jimmy Stewart, born on this day in history in 1908 in Indiana, Pennsylvania, a Princeton University graduate who says no to an architecture degree and says yes to acting and then yes to war after winning an Oscar, no less. And he says no to publicity tours and yes to getting in the air and fighting alongside fellow pilots. His plane was hit by anti-aircraft fire and nearly knocked out of the air on several occasions, but he never failed to put his bombs on target. After 20 combat missions, Stewart was promoted to major and made operations officer of the 453rd. By then, he had been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, three times received the Air Medal, and once received the Croix de Guerre from France. This latter medal was an award given by France and Belgium to individuals allied who allied themselves and distinguished themselves with acts of heroism. 
He would later return home as a lieutenant colonel with 1,800 hours of flight time. Crazy. Stewart continued to play a role in the Army Air Force's reserves following World War II. On July 23, 1959, Stewart was promoted to Brigadier General. On February 20, 1966, Brigadier General Stewart flew as a non-duty observer in a B-52 on an arc-like bombing mission during the Vietnam War. He refused the release of any publicity regarding his participation, as he did not want it treated as a stunt, but as a part of his job as an officer in the Air Force Reserves. After 27 years of service, Stewart retired from the Air Force on May 31, 1968. But after World War II in 1946, Stewart returned to the big screen with a movie we all know, It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra. This film tells a story about a man brought back from the verge of suicide by a guardian angel and visions of the world without him. It was a disappointment at the box office, but it became a holiday favorite over the years. Stewart reportedly considered to be one of his favorite films. Here, Jimmy talks about getting the call from Frank Capra asking him to do It's a Wonderful Life. I just got a phone call one day. Capra, and he said, I have an idea for a story. Why don't you come down, and, and I'll, uh, I'll tell, tell it to you. Well, I couldn't get down there quick enough when I sat down. And he said, you're a uh, fellow in a small town. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Yeah, then you get married, and you have all these kids. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. And your father dies, and you have to take over the building Four, and loan. Three, two, one, bingo! <laughs> we made it! Close the door, you just, We made it! Look, look, we're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. And uh, finally, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to jump off a bridge. And an angel by the name of Clarence, he comes down to help you, but uh, he can't swim. Help! You go down and uh, save the... He said, this, this really doesn't sound very good, does it? <laughs> I said, Frank, if you, want, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down, named Clarence, and he can't swim, and I saved, I, I, when do we start? <laughs> what a sense, by the way, huh? Here's the scene from It's a Wonderful Life where George realizes that he's back in the real world. Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals. Zuzu. There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas. Merry! Merry! Yay! Yay! Hello, Bedford Falls! <laughs> Hello, Bedford Falls. You can't watch that enough, that movie. Jimmy Stewart tells us his favorite scene from It's a Wonderful Life before we hear that same scene in this clip. Take well, a listen. I think it was the scene with the angel Clarence yeah. 
When we were in that uh, little house, but we'd just been in the water. The bridge tender's house. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Clarence told me that he was an angel that uh, hadn't won his wings yet. I, I love that. Hey, what's, what's with you? What did what, you say just a minute ago? Why'd you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now think it's just things like that. Now, how do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. <laughs> sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't won my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wing. <laughs> Here Stewart talks about his theory of producing moments of believability as an actor. I've sort of, over the years, I've developed a theory. I'm getting to believe that in, in films, what everybody is striving for is to produce moments not a performance, not a characterization, not something that you get into the part and it's... Uh, you, you produce moments that create a feeling of believability to what you're doing. Now, the moments sometimes don't work. Sometimes it doesn't go... Uh, it, 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 nothing happens. William Wyler has always, always been uh, uh, very famous for taking a lot of takes. And uh, there's the story that he had had this scene with a, a bunch of very competent people, a b very important scene in the movie, and he'd already d done it 30 times. And one of them came and said, Willie, I, 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 wa I want to know what we're doing wrong. What, what, what do you want us to do now? I, I don't know what... And Willie said, no, you're doing it fine. I'm just waiting for something to happen. <laughs> and that's what I mean by creating moments. Fantastic advice to actors, and I think for human beings, actually. If we can just create moments. We try to do that here on Our American Stories as often as possible. Stewart soon starred in Harvey, 1950 a humorous movie about a man with an imaginary rabbit for a friend. But he seemed to be less interested in doing this type of light-hearted film in his later career. Stewart sought out grittier fare after the war, appearing in Anthony Mann's westerns Winchester 73 and Broken Arrow. He also became a favorite of director Alfred Hitchcock, who cast him in several classics, including The Rope, Vertigo, which is considered by many to be Hitchcock's masterpiece, and by my favorite, Rear Window, with Grace Kelly. In the 1970s, Stewart made a couple of attempts at TV. He starred on the Jimmy Stewart Show, a sitcom. He bounced around from here to there. But it was Westerns that would create the resurgence of the career in film of Jimmy Stewart. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that resurgence, and we're also going to hear from other actors and stars about this great man. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Jimmy Stewart. 
born on this day in history. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the fine things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. More on Jimmy Stewart's life, this remarkable life, after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Jimmy Stewart, celebrated for the hour he was born on this day in history. We were talking about how Westerns resuscitated this great career. The Shootist, boy, what a good movie. It turns out he was very superstitious, Stewart. He wore the same hat in every single Western, and he rode the same horse for 21 years. He had a special relationship with this horse. Here, Stewart tells a story about how he told this horse to act out a scene in one of his films and how the horse, well, he just got it. I, I, know, I, I, I know one night I'm, I'm coming into a town and I, I have a little bell on the horn of the saddle and this sort of identifies me. And the bad guys are in the saloon, they're going to get me. And they hear the bell and they say, here he comes. Now, the, now what... What Pi had to do, the, the, the camera goes on, on Pi's legs and then cut to the bad guys in there and goes on as Pi is walking and then it goes up and there's nobody on Pi and he's walking. And they say, now how long is it going to take you to get Pi to walk? And, then, and it was three o'clock at night and there were lights and everything. How long is it going to get you to, to, to uh, take you to get Pi to walk down this long street all by himself? And I, and I said, well, I'll, I'll, have, I'll talk to him. <laughs> and, I, and I went back, and I, I, I really, I said, pie. <laughs> now, this is tough, because you're a horse. <laughs> but you, you have to walk straight down there, and I'm not going to be on you, you see. But you have to walk right straight down and clear to the other end of the set. And the fellow says, how long is it going to take? You're going to talk all night? I said, no, I think you'll do it. So they, they uh, that was a dolly shot, you know. With all. So they uh, rolled the cameras and Pi did it the first time. It was amazing, amazing. I, 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 I loved him. I, I loved the horse. He loved the horse. And again, how many actors rode the same horse their entire career and had a name for the horse. The horse had a name, and he cared about that animal. Well, it was clear that Stewart loved animals, loved people. And on July 28, 1981, Stewart went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson to share another story about an animal that he'd loved. His golden retriever named Bo had died. And here is Jimmy with Johnny Carson telling a classic and beautiful Jimmy Stewart story. The title of it is, is Bo. That's, that's the name of the dog. 
He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball or he felt like it. But, <laughs> but mo mostly he didn't come at all. When, when he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you were with him, things sure didn't drag. He'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. He bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. The gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. He set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. The, suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And on evening walks, and Gloria took him, he was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. And he'd charge up the street with mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare, and I'd wake up and he'd be sitting there, and I'd reach out to stroke his hair, and sometimes I'd feel him sigh, and I think I know the reason why. He'd, he'd wake up at night and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things, and he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And there are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us, and I pat his head. And there are nights when I when I think I feel that stare, and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair, and he's not there. Oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. And it was one of the only times I'd seen Carson move to tears. And it stunned him. And it was just a beautiful story told in sort of Dr. Seuss, simple poem form, perfect Jimmy Stewart, beginning to end. Stewart became the recipient of numerous tributes during the 80s for his career. In 84, he picked up an honorary Academy Award for his ideals both on and off the screen. By the 90s, 
Stuart had largely stepped out of the public eye. He was deeply affected by the death of his bride, Gloria, in 94. The couple had been married since 1949 and had twin daughters together. He also became a father to her two sons from a previous marriage. Jimmy and Gloria Stewart were one of the Hollywood's most enduring couples, and his apparent love and commitment to her added to his reputation as an upstanding and honorable guy. In an interview in 81, Stewart and his wife Gloria were asked what the secret was to the longevity of their relationship. I think a lot of it's luck. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know his art lasted because Jimmy is such a nice person. And if you're married to a really nice person, you really can't help but become nice yourself. Well, now, Gloria, I think you started out that way. No, not half as nice as he was. That was much more selfish. Really? No, no, no. And when, oh, shut up, I'm talking. (laughs) That's why it's lasted. When I say shut up, he shuts up. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to top that. He affected so many people, and one of our favorites, Cal Burnett, she was affected by Jimmy Stewart. Here she is talking about Jimmy's acting in It's a Wonderful Life, is one of her favorite scenes of all time. I think it's uh, one of the finest pieces of work of acting anyone has ever done on the screen. That moment at that bar, uh, it's indelible in my mind. He realizes that he has lost everything. The money is missing. It's Christmas Eve, and he sits there and starts to cry. He is so in tune with that character and with that writing that uh, he and George Bailey are one. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. How about the end of my rope? I... Are you all right, George? Will somebody take you home? We played you Jimmy Stewart's poem about the death of his beloved dog, Bo. Here, Jimmy Stewart recites his poem, Hotel in Hunin, for Johnny Carson on May 2nd, 1983. Now, this is the, the hotel in Hunin. And it goes like that. The top step in the hotel in Hunin is mean. <laughs> like, like the devil is mean. And it lies at the top of the other steps. So quiet, so still, so serene. But this top step has something quite special. A, a very ingenious device. It's half an inch higher than the other steps. A whole inch to be more precise. And it uses this inch as a weapon the guests of the place to harass. For when you reach the third floor of that hotel in Hunin, the the top step trips you right on your ass. (laughs) I've had my share of knocks on the head I've felt enemy gunfire and war, but if you want my opinion of what's really bad, I'd be glad to give you the score. 
Of all the degrading, inhuman, mean things that I in my life have yet seen, the gross, most despicable one of them all is the top step in the hotel in Hunin. <laughs> He died on July 2nd, 1997, but on this day in history, he was born. While he may be gone, his movies have lived on and inspired countless others. His warmth, his good humor, you just heard it. And my goodness, his easy charm and his his honor. It's all there, and it left a lasting impression on America forever. Jimmy Stewart. 